This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the October 23rd, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Algiers, London, Cairo, Honolulu, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. A large fleet of Britain-based bombers struck across the Channel into France today to hammer German air drones and communications. And Allied planes from Italy have attacked southeastern Austria. The 8th Army has resumed the offensive in Italy, driving across the Trignore River and capturing three towns. But British General Alexander says progress toward Rome will be slow. German troops are in an increasingly bad spot in Russia as the Red Army pushes relentlessly on toward the Crimea. And in the Balkan War, General Tito's guerrillas have captured 2,000 Germans in Yugoslavia. Now for further details on the Mediterranean War, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Algiers. John Daly reporting. Senior River, 13 miles north of Camelie, a stepping stone in the Allied drive to break the German hold on the lateral highways running westward to Rome. The 8th Army attack broke a three-day stalemate along the Italian mainland front. Under the personal command of General Montgomery, British troops cleaned up the principal enemy strong point south of the Tignor River, occupying Lucito and Montenero, drove the Germans off several commanding heights overlooking the battle area, and forced the crossing of the river in one sector. Frontline reports indicate that other British units have reached the south bank of the river at several points. In central Italy, where the left flank of the 8th Army and the right flank of General Mark Clark's 5th Army, to which General Eisenhower has just paid a visit, are driving through the difficult mountain spine running down the Italian peninsula. Advances were small but significant. The 8th Army flank occupied Campo Chiaro on the forward slopes of the mountains commanding the main highway to Isernia and Rome, while the 5th Army flank captured Baia e Latina, a road junction four miles northwest of Dragoni. Progress in the mountains of central Italy is slow, but any advance, no matter how small, that gives us further command of the road networks in that area is very important. There was little activity in the center of the 5th Army Front, and our left flank on the Tyranian coastal plain still rests on the south bank of the canal, four miles north of the Volturno River. Bad weather kept our heavy bombers on the ground yesterday for the second day in a row, but medium, light, and fighter bombers continued the accelerated air offensive. The Germans have learned by experience that in Allied military operations, the Northwest African Air Force has taken the place of that calm which traditionally precedes the storm. 
Yesterday, medium bombers scored direct hits on three important bridges in the Rome area, causing new havoc in this bottleneck of enemy communications, which recent photo reconnaissance shows has been badly mauled. The Rome-Leghorn and Rome-Florence rail lines are completely blocked. Medium bombers also attacked the coastal gun positions near Gaeta, over 20 miles north of the battlefront. And closer to the battlefront, the tactical air force in a large-scale dawn-to-dusk offensive drew wave after wave of planes into attacks on enemy troops, defense points, and railway and highway bridges. Scores of enemy trucks were set on fire, and several hundred railroad trains blasted. Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau, who has just finished a tour of the Mediterranean area, held a press conference here at headquarters this morning. He said a good deal about the great work that has been done in this theater. We asked for news of home. He told us there's too much optimism at home and the lack of realization of what our troops are up against. Mr. Morgenthau went to the Volturno front and saw what we are up against, and this is what he had to say. The battle ahead will be hard, tough, and bloody. Now back to CBS in New York. More news in just a moment, but first here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Admiral is today turning out many different electronic instruments for our fighting forces. Radios for ships, planes, and tanks, direction finders, altimeters, and many others. I wonder if you've heard this story of a Thunderbolt pilot for whom an altimeter, built perhaps by Admiral, measured the distance between life and death. At full throttle, he roared down toward the earth with his eyes glued to the altimeter on his instrument panel, watching it drop from 25,000 feet to 20,000 to 15 to 12. Something had gone wrong. Frantically, he pulled back on the stick, eased off the throttle, even fired his guns, but the plane refused to pull out of the dive. Then, at 10,000 feet, the nose slowly lifted, and at 5,000, the plane finally leveled off. Just another dive, you say. Well, listen to this. Army experts later estimated that during the time he plummeted earthward, this pilot had actually reached the amazing speed of 840 miles an hour, 14 miles a minute, even faster than the speed of sound. Yes, for those few seconds, the most important thing in the world to that pilot was his altimeter, the instrument that measured the distance between himself and death. Such experiences are being duplicated on many fighting fronts where Admiral equipment is being used. Admiral guiding our forces to the attack. Admiral summoning aid to our men in distress. This is the wartime duty of your peacetime Admiral, America's smart set. Now, here once again is Doug Edwards. American medium bombers attacked France again today. And standing by at our London microphone is the man who commands American bombers in the European war theater. For his report, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS London. Larry Lasseur reporting. London was the scene of a huge home guard mock war today. More men took part in the exercise than we have fighting in Italy. U.S. medium bombers, heavily escorted, attacked two German fighter airfields near Paris. We shot down seven German fighters and lost only one Allied aircraft. Here on the Western Air Front, there's a chosen group of young men who are fighting and dying for you. They are the air crews of our heavy daylight bombers. And a large part of our hopes for eventual victory go riding on their shoulders. A great weight of responsibility for masterminding the daylight battle of Germany rests on a young American general, 38-year-old Brigadier General Frederick Anderson, commanding General 8th Bomber Command. <laughs> 
Today, he's taken time off from his heavy duties to answer some questions about America's part in the Battle of Germany. General Anderson, do you consider major daylight raids on Germany worth their cost, even if our losses are high? In the first place, there's no such thing as a major raid. The word raid is wrongly used to describe our bombardment operations. At the present time, it's the Germans who are making ineffectual raids on England. Our operations against Germany and occupied Europe have gone far past the raid stage. With the Royal Air Force, we are jointly launching major campaigns in the air involving striking forces with a potential effect on the enemy greater than any single striking force, either on the land or the sea or in the air, operated in any part of the world today. Over a million Germans are involved in opposing any one of our major air operations. To answer your question, losses must always be weighed against accomplishments. Swinefurt is an example. We can presume that of the 600 missing American airmen, between 300 and 400 are alive. Therefore, at a loss of between 200 and 300 men, we have destroyed approximately 50% of Germany's ability to produce mobile war machines. I am convinced that the results of this operation, when finally analyzed after the war is over, will be found to be the greatest single blow struck against Germany's war capacity during the entire bloody conflict. Well, General Anderson, has the opposition against our flying fortresses become stronger? Yes, and it will continue to become stronger as pressure on the Hun increases. The more vital the target, the more fiercely he'll fight to defend it. No part of Germany or occupied Europe which is capable of supporting any vital industry is immune from attack from the British Isles. On the basis of available evidence, we must presume that the enemy will continue to reinforce his fighter strength on the Western Front from squadrons stationed in Russia and the Mediterranean, and from its existing reserves. When he exhausts his ability to draw from the Mediterranean and Russian fronts, and exhausts his reserve, then the critical period for the German Air Force will be reached. That time is approaching, and we must not falter, the way the Germans did in the Battle of Britain. I can assure you that we will not fail. Thank you, General Anderson. We return you now to New York and Doug Edwards. Allied planes continue their attacks on enemy islands in the Aegean. For a report on the latest developments in the Middle East, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Cairo, James Fleming reporting. This week's outspoken injunction by the Middle East Commander-in-Chief General Wilson, asking certain of the Greek Patriot fighters to cease turning their arms against each other and to concentrate on fighting the Germans, underlines one of the basic problems faced by Allied political strategy in Southeastern Europe. This fratricidal strife in Greece, essentially a quarrel between two left-wing patriot bands, is in no sense a civil war. It's a small-scale scrap with large-scale implications. With liberation in sight, Greek political temperatures are running high, and General Wilson's advice to the effect that now is not the time and arms are not the means by which to resolve internal difficulties is timely. Some of the same would certainly be applicable to the two guerrilla bands in Yugoslavia. Today, both the partisans and the forces of General Mihailovic report clashes by their respective troops in Dalmatia. The partisans say they killed 300 of Mihailovic's men, and the latter protest 
that they are forced to fight the partisans even as they fight the Germans. The accusations fly thick and fast from both camps. The solution to these Yugoslav differences is presumably one of the urgent items on the agenda of the Moscow conference. It is hoped here that out of that meeting will come a formula that will reconcile these Balkan irreconcilables. Meanwhile, the Nazis seek to make political capital of this Balkan discord. One of their projects, reported by a neutral source, is the so-called Greater Serbia, which will involve the return by Hungary and Bulgaria of certain Yugoslav territories for the creation of this new nationalist state. A Bushlink Machiavellian named Filak, who is the chief operator in the Bulgarian Regency, has visited Hitler apparently to discuss Bulgaria's part in this performance. Of course, such a German move has no meaning whatsoever, except to a minority of Slavic collaborationists. The chief use of the new Greater Serbia would be as a propaganda diversion for the outside world. In the wake of the Moscow conferences, at a time when the Allies are reaching common understandings concerning the Balkans, we can expect any number of Nazi overtures in southeastern Europe, all of them designed to confuse the issue. This is James Fleming in Cairo. I return you now to New York and Doug Edwards. In Russia, the Red Army continues to move ahead. Dispatches from Moscow this morning say Soviet troops, in a new effort to widen their salient on the Dnieper River bend, launched great attacks to seize the vital Zamninka rail junction, which is 40 miles southwest of Kremenchuk. The Germans now admit their withdrawal from Melitopol, and they concede that the Red Army attack was on a large scale. Here in our New York studio to discuss the military situation in Russia in the light of Berlin broadcasts is Major General George Fielding Elliott. In a broadcast heard in this country by CBS shortwave listing post, Radio Berlin confirms the views already expressed by military observers in the United States. But the moment has now come for the Germans to throw their reserves into the battle south and southeast of Kremenchuk. This broadcast hints that the Germans have been conserving manpower up to this time, and so they possess considerable reserves which must now be put into action. The German broadcast admits that the Soviets are at present widening their bridgeheads and are putting in enormous forces of tanks, motorized infantry, and artillery. The Germans speak repeatedly of the extraordinary Russian strength on this front. The conclusion drawn by the German broadcaster seems to be that the victory will go to the side which can throw in the greatest reserve at this crucial moment, a view which hardly contains any element of novelty, was expressed once by Napoleon, but which is interesting because it implies something less than certainty that it will be the Germans who will be thus victorious. It is interesting to observe in this connection that London has just reported a DNB broadcast from Germany which states that German troops in front of Krivoy Rog have been withdrawn to the rear as a result of enemy pressure. This may mean that the vital railway junction of Krivoy Rog is already in Russian hands, though the Russians have not yet claimed it. Of course, the regular Russian communique for today is not due for several hours. If it is true that Krivoy Rog has fallen, then such German troops as have not yet been withdrawn from the Dnieper Bend region are out, are cut off and doomed, unless German counterattacks can regain that junction very quickly. On the whole, we must certainly agree with the German broadcaster that the time has come for the use without stint of the German reserves for counterattack in force and the outcome of the great battle now raging in and south 
of the bends of the Dnieper River will depend on the power which the Germans are now able to throw into this decisive counterattack. The result can either be a mere loss of territory by the Germans, a fresh withdrawal to some new defensive line on the pattern which the Germans have so successfully carried out in Russia during the past several weeks. Or it can be a tremendous German disaster with the loss of hundreds of thousands of German troops. This would, might be a blow from which the Wehrmacht would never recover. It wouldn't be decisive, but it would be a cruel and bleeding wound. The battle can go either way at the moment. Remember, it is the destruction of the German army at which the Russian high command is aiming, not just the recovery of this or that piece of territory. That was Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The German news agency reported in a broadcast an hour ago that major formations of United States four-engined bombers penetrated German territory from Italy around noon and extended their raid to the Vienna area. There is no confirmation. The Japanese in Burma are still on the receiving end of an almost endless series of attacks by British planes. A New Delhi communique tells of widespread attacks against enemy troop positions, villages, and communications. And now for a report on conditions in the South Pacific by two lieutenant colonels who have just returned from that war zone. Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. Just arrived from the fighting in the Southwest Pacific on a special mission in Hawaii are two lieutenant colonels of the United States Army, Colonel John W. Ferris, artillery, of Abingdon, Illinois, and Washington, D.C., and Colonel Stanley R. Larson, infantry of Honolulu, Hawaii. They've seen much action down there, including this final cleanup for the North Central Solomons. How goes the war, Colonel Ferris? Pretty tough. I don't know which is the toughest, the war itself or living conditions. Our reason for taking Bella La Bella was that it is so well located geographically in the North Central Solomons. After we had taken New Georgia, the Japs that escaped had gone over to join their garrison on Columbonga Island. They were waiting for us over there, expecting us to come right on over and attack. However, Larson's combat team was sent on to bypass that island and land on Bella La Bella, which is on further north. This was the first time we had used these bypass uh, tactics in the southwest Pacific, and it caught the Japs completely by surprise. Don't you think so, Swede? Yes, it did. Our landing party got in without any opposition. The Japs knew our forces were in the area, and as Johnny here says, they were concentrated down on Kulumbanga. We were the first outfit to land on Bella. The island has no beaches, and we had to bring our landing barges in on coral rock, then wait ashore. The worst opposition we had came from some dead Jap bodies that had washed up on shore from a previous Vela Gulf naval engagement. They were pretty ripe. I see what you mean. It was about 45 minutes before the Japs discovered where we were and got planes up the Vela to attack us. By that time, we had safely established our beachhead and had dispersed our forces well enough so that our losses were very light. They came in with 40 dive bombers and zeros, bombing and strafing. They came back an hour later, but this time our planes had arrived from our new field on Munda, on New Georgia, and intercepted them so that very few Jap planes got through. From then on, our toughest opposition was from bombing and strafing at night when it was moonlight. Yes, the moonlight, although beautiful, is not looked forward to down in that part of the world. It so often means night raids. What about the land opposition on Bella La Bella, Colonel Larson? As soon as the Japs definitely knew that we had landed in force on Bella, 
They send in heavy reinforcements from the north shore of the island, about 18 miles away. The jungle is so thick, though, that it took us over a week before we could get near enough to fight them. We literally had to cut our way the whole length of the island. In fact, that's routine down there. We have to cut the jungle to fight every island, infantry and artillery. Incidentally, we infantrymen swear by the artillery, and we feel that without them we would be almost less than half a team. Even if Colonel Ferris weren't here, I'd say that it's the artillery that's really punching the holes in the Jap jungle defenses. Well, it looks like the infantry and artillery are really working as a team down in the southwest Pacific, Colonel Ferris, right? Yes, and it's working pretty well. While Swede's outfit was landing on Bella La Bella, our artillery swung up from New Georgia to set up opposite Vila. We massed artillery fire on Vila day and night for eight days and battered them so badly that the Doughboys moved in without opposition. In fact, they took only one prisoner there, and he was a deserter. This whole idea that the Japs fight on to the death uh, didn't hold in this case, then. The Jap is a good soldier, and he's probably a bit fanatical. But when he gets his belly full of punishment, he doesn't hesitate to pull out and run. This old face-saving stuff doesn't always hold true. Their officers don't hesitate to desert their troops, either, when the going gets tough. Our capture of Bella Lavella puts American forces in a nice strategic position in the North Central Solomons. I know our listeners will be glad to know that for his action in the Solomons, Colonel Larson has the Distinguished Service Cross. Thank you, gentlemen. Lieutenant Colonel Stanley R. Larson of Honolulu, Lieutenant Colonel John W. Ferris of Abingdon, Illinois. This is Webley Edwards in Honolulu. I return you now to New York. In our own country, a new battle looms in Congress over the President's subsidy program. For a summary of this issue and the labor situation, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington, Robert Lewis reporting. The Navy Department has just announced, less than ten minutes ago, the loss of the United States submarine Dorado. This is the 13th American sub to be officially reported lost in this war. The Dorado was launched only last May and the communique only serves to 1945. And the Navy announcement recently that those 45,000-ton aircraft carriers will be completed late in 1945 is described by one congressman as being in plenty of time to participate in the battle in the Pacific. Elsewhere here, the new developments highlighted by the mine and railroad labor problems are threatening the administration's whole stabilization program. As the situation lines up now, Congress is expected to take action supporting a House committee-approved board's order to Alabama miners to return to work by tomorrow morning puts a definite time limit on that score. If the miners fail to act, the board can refer the case to the president, who could again take over the mines and let the government operate them. But the strike is spreading. In addition to Alabama's 22,000, about 16,000 more miners in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and Pennsylvania have quit. What will happen is causing no little loss of sleep here. Union officials have given the miners another order to return to work, but they point out that the strikes are wildcat in nature. In the railroad case also, it's considered here that the only thing that will head off the threatened strike is personal intervention by the president. Tomorrow, debate opens in the Senate on the Foreign Relations Committee's post-war resolution. Administration forces are lining up the votes in order to secure an overwhelming majority. And today, Senator Taft got in a little before the battle opens punch by advocating that the framework of the League of Nations be used as the basis for post-war planning. His idea is to use the existing machinery of the League in order to simplify the task. This is Robert Lewis in Washington, now back to CBS in New York. 
Once again, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. If you have wondered why you can no longer buy an Admiral Radio from your dealer, here's something that might be of interest to you. Every flying fortress that takes off for a raid on Jap or Nazi-held territory carries as part of its regular equipment not one or two, but no less than seven complete radios, each for a separate, specialized purpose. These seven instruments are valued at approximately $50,000, equal to the cost of over 2,000 medium-priced home radios. Every time you hear, for example, of 500 planes bombing enemy bases or industries, remember that the equivalent of over one million civilian receivers have taken an active part in the raid. Admiral is today working at top speed, helping to fill the ever-increasing needs of our armed forces for many kinds of electronic weapons. All the facilities of the great Admiral plants, all the efforts of Admiral engineers and research technicians are being devoted to this one task. In peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers, Admiral will again return to civilian production when victory has been won. News from the fighting fronts is encouraging, but no more so than the news from our home front battle line, the fight against rising prices. Recently, for the first time since the beginning of the war, figures of the Bureau of Labor Statistics show a decline in the average cost of living. Every war bond you've bought and held has played an important part in halting that vicious upward spiral of higher prices, higher wages, still higher prices. A turning point has been reached but the battle must continue. Invest your dollars with Uncle Sam and help keep the lid on rising prices. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney, Speaking coast to coast for Admiral Radio, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Rigby Building, Chicago. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 